Hi, I'm Jake, your podcast producer here at New Hope, and I'd like to invite you to join us with her a new show. It's called What Do I Say? and it's hosted by Pastor Ryan. It seeks to answer just that question. What do I say when I'm dealing with these issues? Whether that's homosexuality, the problem of good and evil, or does God exist? We invite you to listen along to today's episode. It's a good one. I want to welcome you to the podcast show called What Do I Say? My name is Ryan, and I'm the lead pastor at New Hope Church, and I'm joined here by Pastor Jake. Howdy. I want to thank you for listening whenever or wherever you might be uh, today. Uh, Just as review, the goal of this monthly podcast is to apply the timeless truth of Scripture to the timely topics that we face today. You know, more than ever, we need to be equipped as followers of Jesus to be able to respond to the pressing questions of the day. We need, we need to be able to build a clear and theologically accurate foundation for faith in Jesus in a culture that is increasingly anti-Christian. So what our goal is, each episode, if you've been listening to a handful already, you know this, but we take on one topic and we aim to equip you to think and respond biblically about the topic. And of course, as always, if you would like to interact more on today's topic or any other for that matter, you're welcome to email me at ryan at newhopeadel.org, and uh, I would love to hear from you. We're always looking for uh, ideas for what to do our next show about as well, so if you've got this, send them on over. Please do that, for sure. Well, today's episode is uh, one that it might echo a little bit of where we just were a few days ago, because this past weekend was Easter. Easter celebration weekend at New Hope, but also obviously around the world with the uh, remembering the death of Jesus and celebrating the empty tomb that he is alive. And so to to piggyback on that, I thought it'd be important and good to take on the topic of the resurrection today. More specifically, the question that we're going to deal with is, what do I say about the resurrection? In other words, really, did it happen? Because you know as well as I do, there's plenty of skepticism today about the resurrection. And as Christians, we need to be able to respond to this challenge. And I say, well, why? Well, because simply put, Christianity stands or falls on the bodily historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a verse about that, right? Did Paul say something? Yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse 14. Paul, and he's so direct about this, uh, to what we're just talking about. He said, and if Christ has not been raised, in other words, the resurrection, then our preaching is useless, and here it is, and so is your faith. Mm. In other words, if you prove, if anybody proves that Jesus did not rise from the dead, then you will have successfully proven Christianity false. But conversely, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then his life and his teachings are vindicated. Mm. So for this episode, what we're going to do is we're going to take on this question. And this is really for anyone who, if you're listening, maybe has doubts about the resurrection. Did it happen historically? Is there evidence for that? But also it's for everyone who has the opportunity to interact with people, others who may have similar questions. So the game plan for today, because there's so much we could say about this, is we're going to have some laser focus, and we're going to talk about one argument. In fact, more specifically, it's called the minimal facts argument. Maybe you're familiar with it, maybe not. Pretend I'm not. What what is minimal facts argument about? 
For sure. And we're going to unpack that today in this episode. Okay. So by the time you're done listening to this, you're going to understand the minimal facts argument and how it's used. Uh, this is an argument that was developed by New Testament scholars, Gary Habermas and Michael Lycona. And personally, I find it very compelling. Okay. So let's just define what it is first, and then we'll deep dive into some of the details of it. The minimal facts argument is this. If you or anybody can successfully establish the truth of the resurrection event by appealing only to facts that are so strongly verified as historically true events, and what that means is that nearly every scholar who studies the subject, it doesn't matter if the scholar is a believer, a theist, an atheist, agnostic, a naturalist, it doesn't matter. That, that there's so much evidence for the historic the historical event to actually be true that they has to be granted as true. So let me say that whole thing again. This argument establishes the truth of the resurrection by only looking at the minimal facts that are, for the most part, by any scholar embraced as historically true events. So we're holding kind of the same historical standard that we would hold for anything else in a history book, right? That's right. Did a lot of people see it? Did a lot of people write about it? Did this really happen? Do we have yeah, sufficient evidence that, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And because it's something that is appeals to any scholar, anybody who's looked into this in any you know robust manner, that it isn't just something that's coming out of the Christian bubble or Christian literature it becomes very compelling because it's substantiated by all kinds of people mm-hmm. to be, again, historically, real life, verified to be true. So what, what we're going to do on this episode is give you four examples of minimal facts. Okay. Now, there's more than four. Um, some would point to five or six. I've even seen as many as 12. But nonetheless, there's, there, there's a, a handful of different minimal facts. We'll just focus on on four of those in this episode here. Now, before we get started, though, with looking at these four minimal facts, some skeptics will argue, and maybe you've heard this before, that the resurrection of Jesus cannot be investigated historically. But see, I think that's actually a mistake because this is a historical event. I mean, either it happened or it didn't. And so for any of us, It's the same process of looking at the evidence, what evidence is available to us, and where does the evidence lead? Because it's a historical event, it should be accessible to anybody to be able to verify or to look at the evidence. Now, I want to draw a distinction, though. The facts of the resurrection and whether or not it actually happened, that's a historical question. The meaning of the resurrection, well, that's a theological question topic. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. In terms of what did the resurrection accomplish? Th- that's that's something that biblical scholars will get into, but we're not to- talking about that today. We're simply talking about, did this happen historically? Right. So, I mean, if you're sharing these with someone who has doubts about the resurrection, you are not, when you're bringing up these arguments, you're not trying to convince them the resurrection happened, so you need to do this, or you need to do this. It's Literally just saying, hey, this is evidence that the resurrection did happen, right? And if you can establish that on solid, historical, verified evidence, 
what that does do then is have that second conversation just alluded to. So now what does this mean for your life? If Jesus did rise from the dead, just like he said he would, well, that means something. Mm -hmm. And then you can begin to talk about the theological implications uh, for our daily lives and what that means. Makes sense. Well, let's jump into our first minimal fact. And these are in no particular order, but uh, here's one example of a minimal fact, and that is the death of Jesus by crucifixion. So, So what I'm saying here and what this minimal fact speaks to is that there is very strong historical evidence that Jesus, who is a real historical person, died by crucifixion. Now, what's the evidence for that? Well, you can begin with the Bible, that all four gospel accounts report that this happened. Now, if you're talking with a person or you are a person where you are skeptical about the Bible, that's okay, because this event is also confirmed by several non-Christian sources. Let me just give two examples. There's more than two, but just two. Uh, First, you have the Jewish historian Josephus, who lived near this time. He wrote, after his investigation, that Pilate, this is a quote now, Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, condemned him, that's referring to Jesus, to the cross. So here we have a Jewish historian, uh, no friend of Christians, by the way, who is reporting here that Pilate was involved, that Jesus was condemned, and that he went to the cross or was killed by crucifixion. We also have another historian, uh, Tacitus, who is a Roman historian, and this is what he wrote. I'm quoting him. Uh, he wrote, Therefore, to stop the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished in the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices whom the crowd styled or called Christians. Then it says something interesting. Christus, the founder of the name, or Christians, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. So here's another historian who lived, I mean, just right beyond this event of the crucifixion, and notice from his quote that Jesus died by death during the reign of Emperor Tiberius. So what we can do there is that's timestamp. So we know Tiberius reigned between the years uh, AD 14 to 37, but he calls out that Pontius Pilate was was the procurator, was Mm -hmm. ruling during this time, and is the one that sentenced him to death. Again, supports what the Bible teaches. And he was in that role, we know, from AD 26 to 36. So we even tighten our window a little more to a 10-year window just through the Roman historian. So what does this mean? Well, this means that here on this minimal fact that Jesus died by crucifixion, that we have multiple independent and early eyewitness sources, including enemies of Christianity, that report that Jesus was killed by crucifixion. This is very, very strong historical evidence to such a degree, in fact, that most scholars, in fact, you're hard-pressed to find one who will deny this minimal fact. Yeah, it, it makes sense. I mean, you've got these these people are not, there's no bias in there at all. I mean, again, Josephus and Tacitus uh-huh. are not are not Christians, are not even friends of Christians at this time. And 
How early did you say these these historians were? They're right there in the first century. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Yeah. So, they're, really so, so these historians had every opportunity to talk to the people who were still alive, mm-hmm. who were there when alive when Jesus was crucified, or as we'll talk about later on, the resurrection. Okay. Again, very, very compelling. Any of you listening, any person for that matter, to hold to the 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 fact that Jesus died by crucifixion, you stand on very strong footing, very strong evidence for that. And as an aside, this this is important too. This refutes the objection that Jesus did not die. I, I mean, there is that idea out there that would oh, yeah. say that Jesus didn't die. It was a it was a some sort of really intense wound and he basically passed out for three days and yeah. woke up, right? It's, it's called some... the swoon theory. Oh, okay. You know, that he, a lot of pain, he lost consciousness. Right. But w- later when wrapped and placed in the cold tomb, the dampness uh, of the uh, tomb, okay. he revived, if you will, right, and was right. able to uh, limp his way out of, despite all the wounds, of course, uh, out. And, and so he appeared dead, but la- but later, but he wasn't. He just simply swooned. Um, I'll add to it too that this is, this minimal fact that is historically verified also refutes Islam, because Islam holds that Jesus never died. Okay, they hold that he was historical. They'll even grant crucifixion, but that he never died. And, and so, what is what is there? How do they get him off the cross if he didn't die? Same thing, or is he like rescued somehow? Well, I'm sure, I don't know. There's a lot of different variety of answers for there, but doctrinally speaking, they have to land on that place that he never actually died. Right, right, right. Interesting. So there's minimal fact number one. The death of Jesus by crucifixion. Let's go on to number two. All right. Here's another one. Another minimal fact is that the tomb was empty. Because here's the bottom line. Something happened to the body of Jesus. So... So, so we know that Jesus died. We just talked about that. And New, Tor- New Testament, excuse me, sources say that he was placed in a tomb. And of course, three days later, the tomb was empty. So here's the big question. Was the tomb actually empty? And if it was, of course, where did the body go? So these are kind of stacking on each other, right? We've started with he died, proving that he died. Now we're talking about... The tomb is empty. And okay, I see where we're going with this. Something happened to the yeah. body. So the big question is what? What happened to, to the body there? So, and here's the key it says, because all the person had to do, if you were alive at the time of this event, all a person had to do was investigate the tomb. Now, there's a theory that says that people went to the wrong tomb. Highly unlikely. This was an incredibly public event. Oh, yeah. You had the Roman guards guarding it. Everybody knew where the body was. But nonetheless, all that person had to do was go investigate the tomb and produce the body. And if you do that, then this entire discussion ends because there's the body. Which is, I mean, the Romans knew that, which is why they assigned guards in the first place is they knew that there might be something weird with it. And they were worried about the disciples trying to steal his body, right? That's right. Yeah. And that is so important, Jake, because there were plenty of people in Jerusalem at this time, highly motivated to do whatever it took to make sure that there was no sort of evidence of a resurrection. There were Jewish authorities, Roman authorities, 
that highly motivate to make sure that body stayed in that grave. Mm -hmm. And to end any kind of talk about who this Jesus was or any talk about a resurrection or any talk of any kind of revolution that would come out of that. They were committed not only to his death, but to making sure he stayed dead. Mm -hmm. And him and his movement and any talk of his followers. Yeah. Exactly. But 2,000 years, we're still talking about him. And we're still talking about him. You are have you are on solid historical footing when you hold to the idea of an empty tomb, because it meets the criteria, the historical criteria of multiple independent and eyewitness sources, including implicit enemy attestation, meaning the enemies also reported that the body was gone, is you also have the principle of embarrassment. This is embarrassing for the Jewish authorities. This is embarrassing for Mm -hmm. Rome and Pilate and the guards and and all. This is an embarrassing thing, which historically, when we look at evidence for whether things really happen, that's a factor that really does come into play for what is authentic. What is something that we can point to and say, there is strong evidence. I mean, because if if the Romans wanted a conspiracy, they would have gone the other way. They would have lost his body and then said, oh, no, it's still here. Here's another tomb. Don't look in it or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. So you already mentioned it. What you do find on this topic becomes the the opposition to this minimal fact is the claim that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. I mean, this is really the only and the leading theory. I'd mentioned before about, you know, people went to the wrong tomb. That doesn't really get traction. But you have this idea. In fact, it was even, we read about this, of, of the disciples, you know, tried to do this. But here's what's ironical about it, though is that even if that happened, for the sake of argument, let's grant that the disciples did steal the body out of the tomb. Even if that happened, it still supports the fact that the tomb was empty. Mm -hmm. So we still have to deal with this problem of where did the body go? So then it brings us to the question is, is there evidence that the disciples stole the body of Jesus and then create a lie about the resurrection? Is there, is there historical evidence for that? What can we do with that? And I will tell you that if there is, and if the disciples, if that's really the way it went down, this is the greatest hoax in human history. Oh, yeah. But of course, there's so many problems with this idea. Let me just give you a few. This isn't all of them, just a few. Uh, first, what reason would the disciples have to do this? Th- I mean, the the resurrection was not even something they expected to happen. No. no. But even even if they did, why would they do this? Um, another thing, why would these disciples create a situation where the women were the primary eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus? Like in their time, and I know it's a different culture and time than today, but their testimony had no legal or social influence. Nobody was write the script that way. Right. So if you're going to have someone steal it, you need someone super credible to find the tomb empty rather than that's right because you got to get the tomb empty and then you got to somehow push this this narrative about a risen Jesus mm-hmm. we'll get to more on that later on uh if the disciples stole the body why would they create a story that they stole the body that's self-incriminating that doesn't make any sense um and then they also got the problem of how in the world is this group of disciples who are <laughs> No offense, but not the A team here. Right. Like they're they're sort of a work in progress. This How in the world 11. are they going to get past the Roman guards in a sealed tomb? Mm-hmm. Like that, that this, this isn't something that just would happen. 
And then finally, why would the disciples reorient their entire lives, their entire future, and ultimately die for their belief in a real resurrection? Because the truth is, liars make very poor martyrs. Right, right. Because once that moment of consequence comes, usually they sing like a bird. Yeah. I mean, I could see it as they're gaining progress. And yeah, it makes sense to a certain extent of they're gaining a lot of notoriety. They're getting a lot of followers. It's exciting. It's fun. But yeah, the moment it comes to actually die for it, you're not dying for a lie that you know. Yeah. There's another another uh, minimal fact, and we'll touch on it later on, but it just highlights the the explosion of Christianity and the change of these disciples. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they really are a work in progress when Jesus is with them. And then you see the Holy Spirit comes and, and these men really do change oh, and yeah. God uses them in powerful ways. You have other minimal facts that we won't talk about in this podcast, such as Jesus's half-brother, uh, James, mm. an ardent, strong unbeliever. Jesus appears to him. All of a sudden he's a believer and he writes a book of the Bible and leads the church in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul, who is formerly Saul, who, who goes to Damascus to hunt and jail believers, Jesus, the risen Jesus, shows up, radically transformed and changed. These are other minimal facts that uh, can also be pointed to. So what have we established so far? Jesus died by crucifixion, and that tomb is empty. These are historically verified uh, facts that you could stand on. So what's next? Number three, the post-resurrection appearances. Another minimal fact that has historical corroboration that is is pretty significant. The one that that typically people point to, and, and it does go back to scripture, but here's what's important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, you have Paul who's recounting um, some important events that happen with this post-resurrection and Jesus showing up. He's he's alive. He's engaging with people and things are happening, this risen Jesus. Now, what's important about this passage, verses 3 through 8 of chapter 15, is that most scholars, and I agree, the way this is written is it's these are not actually Paul's words. He's quoting a creed, uh, an early creed that the church um shared amongst each other. It was a statement or saying that they would hold to, like a theological doctrine or conviction that they might repeat to one another over and over because it was so foundational. And so Paul here is recounting, quoting, if you will, this early creed that dates really within a few years of the crucifixion. Now, here's also why this is important, because as you'll see, and I'm going to read it in just a moment, the people who are in this passage or in this creed, they're still alive. Mm -hmm. And so it would have been easy for them to say, uh, no, that didn't happen actually. Right. He's going to quote names, specifics that could be historically verified. This is a very robust argument. So let's look at though, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 8. It says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, in which also you stand. Now, here's the quote, or the, or the creed, if you will, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, 
then to the twelve, or the twelve disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. That's quite a scene. So five, you're talking about a crowd here, 500 people at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep or passed away. Then he also appeared to James. We just talked about that. The half-brother of Jesus, a strong unbeliever, but of course, was, life was radically transformed. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he, Jesus, also appeared to me, or of course, Paul, who Mm -hmm. wrote these words. Pretty powerful and very specific about these post-resurrection appearances. Now, in this creed, we notice again an echoing of three of our minimal facts. Jesus died, the tomb was empty, and that he appeared after the resurrection bodily to people. And again, Paul not only mentions multiple post-resurrection appearances very specifically, but he also includes himself as having seen the risen Lord. Mm-hmm. And so these people, many of them were, of course, still alive, including Paul. Yeah. So what would some of the objections be to, to these appearances? I mean, surely there's some answers that people come up with. The primary one, and and I just I don't find this compelling whatsoever. It's called the hallucination theory. Okay, and the theory says that the disciples, well, all the people listed here—Peter, the disciples, the apostles, James, Paul, the five hundred—on it goes that all these different people experienced hallucinations about Jesus appearing to them after his death and resurrection. But here's the problem. This doesn't work. And the primary reason is that's not how hallucinations work. Right. See, hallucinations are private experiences. In other words, a group of people can can all be hallucinating at the same time. I mean, that certainly can happen, but they're not having the same hallucination. Right. They have individual hallucinations. And so in that way, hallucinations are, they're like dreams. We can all be sleeping. But Jake, if you're sleeping, you're having a dream about whatever, and then I'm having a different dream. There's no reason we're all looping into the same dream. That's just the way hallucinations work. Right. And so it's a really absurd sort of theory I mean, to it, do this. Maybe it explains Peter and and Saul and maybe James. I could see maybe the disciples all wrecked by grief. One of them starts talking, and yeah, I kind of remember. But I mean, a group of 500 that that's not you're going to have in a group of 500 you're going to have people that if they genuinely didn't experience something are going to say hey man i was there that's not how it went down yes. yeah that's crazy so lots of lots of uh, evidence there for that minimal fact that jesus appeared to people risen after the resurrection so we've talked about death we've talked about empty tune we've talked about him appearing after the resurrection, what's what's next after that? One more, and then we'll wrap up this episode here. And the last one is something I already touched on just briefly before, and that is the origin of the Christian faith. So this one seems a little different than everything else has been about Jesus's life. What, what does this mean? This one, though, is important because no scholar, and really you're hard-pressed to find any scholar, denies the fact that the Christian faith exploded 
out of first century Israel. I mean, within one generation of the death of Christ, this movement originally was called the Way, of course. This this movement spread to Europe and Africa and Asia. I mean, Acts gives us some of those through within Paul's one generation. Journeys. You're saying the what? Within one generation. After within one generation. Death? Wow. I mean, it was rapid, fast wildfire growth here. And so you ask the question, well, where exactly did the Christian faith come from and what best explains its origins? Why would it explode so quickly? What happened to, to cause that to, mm-hmm. to take place? The most obvious answer to this question, and standing upon again this minimal fact of this rapid spread of the Christian faith, is that the disciples truly saw the resurrected Jesus. This is the answer we get from the Bible. And there really isn't any other event that you could insert into this early movement with Jesus that would explain such a rapid burst of growth that took place. Um, I mean, because take take the ministry of Jesus. You have him here, and, and of course he had quite a following through part of his three-year ministry. Mm-hmm. Part of it, he wasn't popular. He spent a decent amount of time avoiding crowds. He spent a lot of time with his 12 disciples in lonely places and investing and training them. The movement he was building was really the church movement that would follow. It was mm-hmm. when he's he's crucified, resurrection, resurrected, he ascends back to the Father. And then we have a time later, the Pentecost event where the Holy Spirit comes down on these people. And there you see this monumental shift. Thousands come to Christ in Jerusalem in one day. This massive church in Jerusalem goes. And then, of course, the diaspora where it's spread out to all over uh, what we would call Israel today as it continues to grow. And I just articulated beyond that, something happened. Mm -hmm. Something radically shook what was going on. And then you look for what we would describe as what in the world is going to turn a group of scared, scattered, skeptical, bumbling disciples with no prior concept and expectation of a crucified and risen Messiah into this band of courageous proclaimers of the gospel, willing to suffer and die for their belief that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. What else explains that? I would argue the origin of the Christian faith the church and the rapid growth that we see historically that is completely verified is best explained by the disciples and many others, in addition to the 12, sincere belief that God raised Jesus from the dead. Amen. And and here's the thing, shifting the burden of proof for this minimal fact to the skeptic actually serves you well. Because anyone who denies the resurrection has to then give an explanation for why Christianity would launch the way it did and as quickly as it did. How, how do you do that in a conversation? Well, you simply ask the question and then just listen. There has to be some explanation mm-hmm. for that. And so you you would ask them for what is that? What is a plausible explanation for why this happened? I and mean, what you'll find is that there isn't one. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially when you think about how instant the spread of Christianity, but also how sustained it was. I mean, it wasn't a flash in a pan. It's been 
to this day. Still, it was completely rapid, yeah. completely an explosive, in a beautiful way, movement. And the thing about it, all of a sudden, Rome, of course, gets noticed that, wait, these aren't actually Jewish people. There's something different going on mm -hmm. here, and they don't worship the emperor. And I mean, Christianity gained its share of enemies, too. Yeah. You, so, so Christianity early on began to be martyred. We just studied Revelation as a church, and that was a part of their, what was going on there. And Emperor Nero, and on it goes. But here was the thing. The more you killed them, the more the movement grew. Right. I mean, the blood of the martyrs was a seed of the church, was a mantra mm -hmm. of that time and beyond. It was quite remarkable. Wow. The resurrection was the flame that hit the powder keg, and it just exploded mm -hmm. in an incredible way. So, so those are some examples of minimal facts. Those are some things in conversation that any of us could come back to and have gentle, respectful, civil dialogue with people about how these are historically verified minimal facts. So what do you do with them? Mm -hmm. And to see where the conversation leads. Because if Jesus is dead at point A and he's alive at point B, well, you have a resurrection. Mm-hmm. And the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best explanation for the known historical data. His death by crucifixion, the empty tomb, the post-resurrection appearances, and the origin of the Christian faith. And, and let me add to that, by the way, naturalistic explanations repeatedly fail to account for all the relevant data. And in some cases are outright false in terms of historical verification. But conversely, the minimal facts for the resurrection is something where it has a great explanatory uh, scope and power. It is plausible. It is not ad hoc. And it is verified by scholars on all sides of the worldview aisle. <laughs> so to end with a, a quote, I love this one by a gentleman named Anthony Flew. This was a guy who for decades was the leading pop culture atheist. He's a he was he's passed away now, but he was a scholar, uh, philosopher. But he was one who took his atheism public, and very out out in front of all of that. Um, Anthony, though, later on became a theist. Mm. Later on, because of the evidence, especially the resurrection, changed his mind. Here's a quote that he says. He says the evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion, it is outstandingly different in quality and quantity. Hmm. And that's what's so important among many other things about Christianity. It, it isn't based on a feeling. It isn't based on sentiment. It isn't pay, even based on vague uh, spirituality. Mm -hmm. It's a historically verified, rooted in time and space faith tradition. And why that's important is that anybody, Christian or not, can go look at the evidence. Mm -hmm. Did it happen? Did Jesus come? Was he crucified? Did he rise from the dead? Did it happen like the Bible says? And what they're going to find and what millions of people have found is it's all true. Mm -hmm. We have great reason and great to have great confidence that the resurrection is a historically true event. And it makes every difference. It should make every difference in our lives. Absolutely. 
Well, I hope those of you listening, thank you for being with us on this podcast. Thanks for uh, leaning into this. And our hope and our prayer is that this both has encouraged you, but also as you engage with other people, as you have uh, grace-filled conversations with them, that this has equipped you to be able to have these conversations with the people that God has put around you in, in your life. So again, thank you for listening. As always, encourage you to drop a note at ryan at newhopeadel.org. And we, Jake and I both, look forward to the next time we get to be with you. God bless. Yeah,